I think everyone has the opportunity to understand like how do they fit in the multidisciplinary puzzle now? Because the future is going to require that. You're going to be in rooms with different people more and more often. So the question becomes how as an individual do you exercise your breadth of collaboration, communication, strategic alignment, visioning with different actors in the room? Hi, I'm Eli Willery. And I'm Aaron Walter. You know, not many people can say that they've gone from being a nuclear engineer to helping design Air Jordans at Nike. But that's part of Kevin Bethune's story. And today we chat with him about his journey from engineering to design. Kevin also published a best-selling book last year called Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation. We talk about what he hoped to learn from writing the book and discuss a critique of design thinking, the role of rigor and creativity, and the rewards and challenges of working with multidisciplinary teams. Also, we've got something new. We're now publishing episodes on Substack, where you can get access to the show a week early. You'll also get show summaries, transcripts, and more. Head over to dbtr.co slash Substack to sign up for free. That's dbtr.co slash Substack. Thanks for subscribing and for listening. Before we get to the show, a few words from our sponsors. With Freehand by Envision, we've built a best-in-class visual collaboration platform used by thousands of enterprise customers, inclusively priced for the whole organization at 50% the cost of Miro and Mural, and now with the Intelligent Canvas, allowing teams to maximize their impact by adding intelligence, automation, and connection to the canvas. Try Freehand by Envision today for free at freehandapp.com. This episode is brought to you by Fable, who make it easy to build accessible, inclusive products. Learn more at makeitfable.com and later on in the show. Kevin Bethune, welcome to the Design Better podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're excited to have you. We've been wanting to have you on for a while. You come out with this great book. And before we talk about that, I just want to talk about your career path a little bit. And we sort of have a little overlap in the trajectory of our career. I started more as a mechanical engineer. When I went through product design, it was much more engineering focused. And so I had a lot more kind of hands-on engineering work in my first four or so years of my career. And it looks like you had a much more technical role as a mechanical engineer, essentially like being a nuclear engineer, which is pretty intimidating sounding, quite honestly. But maybe you could talk us a little bit about you know, how you made the transition from that role to looks like you're getting your MBA and working at Nike and then sort of transitioning into the world of design. We're curious about that trajectory. If I go back to the days of youth, I had a creative inclination that was sort of expressed through the hobby of just drawing the act of drawing was just sort of how I interpreted the world, how I saw the world, I was interpreting through sketch. And I'll emphasize that it was drawing versus actual formal sketching because I didn't know I wasn't formally trained. It was just my hobby. But I think the intersections of math and science and those interests coalescing with the knack for drawing, I should say, led to perhaps engineering as the more pragmatic choice to take as a first step in career. The notion of design or innovation, those were like foreign words that were not celebrated around me, at least where I was raised. And at that time, it was, for the better part, in the Detroit metro area in the heart of American automotive industry. So most of the neighbors were factory workers, engineers, or business people. So engineering made more pragmatic sense. 
But when I ended up in the nuclear power generation industry, I was very thankful and that that industry had a wide open door. It was a great avenue to come in and learn the arts of product creation pretty quickly. And as you said, like nuclear was very intense, the criticality of the work, learning what critical path means, learning how to work with high performing teams to get hardware created, deployed in the field, these kind of things made me really appreciate what it means to deliver something of value. But I think through those experiences, a natural curiosity for the bigger picture sort of emerged in that work. I lacked perhaps the business acumen to be able to understand perhaps more of the strategy around the engineering work. So that led naturally to scratching the itch to get an MBA. Meanwhile, that creative itch for my youth, the hobby of drawing has always been there. But when I got to Nike post-business school, that environment really opened my eyes to the power that creativity could have, not necessarily in isolation, but also in conjunction with technology and business. And so I started scratching my curiosity in the Nike environment, meeting newfound creative friends that exposed me to you know, design literature. Some of them allowed me to channel my raw creative skill to actual you know, footwear design and trying some things under their mentorship and was able to actually ship some product in the Nike environment, which was really gratifying. It's kind of amazing. And I know that like from your perspective, especially in the book, it's pretty clear, like your thread, you said creativity is the common thread in my career. And you had that from your childhood. And if that's applied to, you know, Westinghouse and nuclear engineering or Nike and shoe design or, you know, agencies and doing lots of digital brand and design work, like you can follow that thread through for yourself. But there's a challenge because most people especially like hiring managers, they're going to have a hard time really understanding like, well, wait a second, I'm sorry, this is Nike and we're not hiring any nuclear engineers over here. How do you like position yourself in those transitions to help people understand who you are and what you offer? There was sort of a delicate tact of navigating the not invented here syndrome. In a Nike environment, if you had a different background that was pre-Nike, no one seemed to care about that. It's like, what can you deliver for me today? And I have to assume good intent in most cases that people just didn't have the time to understand fully like what you brought to the table beyond your title. And in many cases, all they saw was the title at first blush. Oh, he's a business planner. So that means he's a numbers guy. There's no way he could be creative. Right, right. <laughs> but I think there was sort of the delicate navigation of trying to stretch those conversations to the point where it's like, well, let me, actually, let me take this from a coffee chat to having me actually show you what I could potentially do to help your team. And so those coffee chats turned into opportunities to stretch myself, even if I was working for free to show that product organization, you know what, I have some raw skills that could be helpful to you, some perspectives from my previous background that could be helpful. And let me show you by just doing some free work to show you how passionate I am about learning your space and the act of doing and experimenting. Then it opened them up to want to like share more find value in the things I was giving them. And then they would see the mutual synergies to where, you know, maybe it was time for another opportunity that could open up for an interview perhaps, or, you know, there was an appetite to want to give me another project that created more evidence and allowed people to see me a little bit differently than just my title. Yeah. Could you go deeper on that? What's a, an example of where you, you use these methodologies to get your foot in the door? So a couple anecdotes, um, when I was a business planner, first job out of B school at Nike, and I was doing a lot of you know financial and operational analysis to help the C level suite <laughs> navigate earnings release calls and these kind of things. 
But outside of the day job, I meandered over to Nike Innovation and I met a gentleman by the name of Albert Shubb. So Albert has just recently navigated through Microsoft, just departed Microsoft for his next chapter. But at the time, Albert was this interesting hybrid business slash creative, sort of in this basement <laughs> studio area at, at the Nike Miaham building. He just said, hey, I can tell you're curious about what we're doing. Why don't you stretch your brain with us? You don't have to tell anyone that you're doing work for us on your personal time. It's, it's your time. You're just coming as Kevin. So just come as Kevin and help us out. Instead of just going on that lunchtime run, come exercise your brain with us. So that was like the first anecdote of like, wow, there's something to this stretch assignment approach. And then fast forward, I happened to meet Dwayne Edwards, who was at the time the footwear design director of the Jordan brand. He's now the president of Pencil Lewis College, uh, one of the world's only footwear design academies dedicated to the industry. But at the time, he met me over a coffee chat where he saw this very curious, creative person that had a title that was very business oriented. But he could tell, he, he gave me a little bit more time to understand my backstory to, to realize that there was more to my story than just the title. I showed him my raw creative drawings for hobby. And he said, you know what? You have raw skill. I can work with it. I have too many briefs, not enough designers. If you come meet me in the mornings at like 6 a.m., he was one of the early risers at Nike, but we would meet at six in the morning. We would commiserate on the couple of briefs that he had. We would then go do our day jobs. And then I would work on his stuff to the wee hours at night. That's amazing. <laughs> and we worked that way for the better part of a year. We got two shoes with my design credits under his mentorship. Uh, and he held me accountable. Like his standards were very high and times I tripped to myself and stumbled over my own two feet. But he helped me. He invited me to the Jordan product reviews. I slid my sketches meekishly onto the table where all these incredible Jordan brand folks were like leaning over to look at my sketches. So these were very gratifying, very scary moments as well, but very gratifying to have the Jordan brand nurture me through their process and respect my contributions that way. Which Jordans did you work on? It was actually an interesting story. The shoe model was the Air Jordan Fusion 8, which was a weird combination of elements from the Nike Air Force One and the iconic Air Jordan 8. And so we did a couple different permutations of celebrating the legacy elements of the shoes to arrive at two new designs. That's super cool. I think in the book, you mentioned too that you crossed paths and maybe had some mentorship from Jason Maiden, who's a friend of the show. Maybe you talk a little bit about that, but just also in general, like, you know, that stage of your career, how did you think about cultivating mentors? And maybe now, how do you think about kind of paying back that mentorship? No, absolutely. You know, Jason definitely is a dear friend. And while many conversations as I was trying to network and meet people at Nike, it was very much like, uh, you know, you're, you're the numbers guy. We see your title and, and this is sort of who you are. You're defined as this. But Jason was one of those first conversations as one of my first professional design friends ever in my career. He sat me down and he just sort of articulated the landscape that was product design through his lens. And I was taking notes furiously over that 30-minute coffee conversation. But I really appreciate that he just painted the landscape for me for the first time so that I, I could begin to have like points of wayfinding to go learn more. So that's where Jason came in. You know, I'm, I'm indebted to folks like Jason, Dwayne, Albert, the folks that really gave me a, a shot, gave me a little bit more time to understand the fuller me. And so now I definitely carry that conviction. And so I try to do my best to always offer time, always 
for anyone that has a question, I try to entertain it and point people in a path that works for them. Is there something in the water over at Nike? Because it does seem like there are a lot of just really smart, talented people who have some tenure at Nike. We also talked with Greg Hoffman in episode 67 and his work there. And of course, Jason Maiden, we had him on episode 47. All three of you are incredibly accomplished, multidisciplinary thinkers. And there are lots of other folks who pass through those halls as well. What's in the water over at Nike? <laughs> yeah, Nike is still a company. There's a lot of you know challenges and opportunities navigating a brand like that. But I can say I really cherished my time there and that you were navigating an environment that did have very deep convictions for how it intended to serve the athlete and also the culture that sort of orbits the athlete experience. And so, you know, I think the competitive drive, the ability to stare down any challenge, like every nuance of the work, you know, you felt those convictions every day. And even how we collaborated, how we communicated, how we gave feedback, we were always referencing the 11 maxims that sort of point to the, the original builders of that generation that actually built and created Nike in the first place, that those convictions, you feel it pervasively in everything. Do you know those 11 rules <laughs> or maxims? Uh, so I probably will fail the examination to cite all <laughs> 11, but like the last one though was Remember the Man, you know, around co-founder Bill Bowerman. And, you know, he was the archetype that, like even in a board meeting, an executive board meeting with all this intellectual horsepower on the table, if there was a new model offering that was debuting, he would have the scale in the boardroom and he would weigh the shoe in front of <laughs> the cast of board members. Like that's the lore of Bill Bowerman, that innovation, that quest for excellence to push and not take anything for granted, not take anything as a given. You could always make it better. No finish line. Like that mentality, that place oozes of that spirit. Kevin, you talk a, a lot in the book about the importance of having a cross-functional mentality, and your career kind of encompasses that. You are the intersection of design and business and technology. And you know, if you're on a product team, you need to understand your cohort. What's your advice to people who may not have that you know, career background necessarily, but want to understand their colleagues better? Oh, well, thank you. I mean, I, I first have to say that the notion of like fulfilling a hybrid or polymathic journey was not always celebrated. And in most cases, I had to get used to being misunderstood <laughs> and only seen at first glance from my title at the given moment. But just based on, you know, especially the last five, 10 years, and as we move forward into the future, I think never before will we feel this need to bring disciplines together more so than what has typically been the exception. It's been more so the exception, not the rule, to bring multidisciplinary teams together around certain shared objectives. But the future is requiring that more of us. It's requiring it to be the norm, not the exception, is what I'm trying to say. And so for anyone that's navigating, even if they haven't had perhaps like an equally proportionate career across these different disciplines, like maybe I have had, I think everyone has the opportunity to understand, like, how do they fit in the multidisciplinary puzzle now? Because the future is going to require that you're going to be in rooms with different people more and more often. So the question becomes, how as an individual do you exercise your breadth of collaboration, communication, strategic alignment, visioning with different actors in the room? But how can you still then bring your depth of expertise to the party, to the table, and be respected for that? And know that your depth of expertise 
doesn't always shine in a meeting room over post-it notes or whiteboarding. Like sometimes you have to get away from the team and go leverage your depth and bring something of substance back to that team to propel it forward. So this orchestration of breadth and depth is what I talk about in the book around like, how do we prepare ourselves for those future needs that lay over the horizon? So there's an additional dimension to your skills that you've developed through your career. And you talk about it in the book. You share some you know, very poignant personal stories about navigating corporate America. And you said in there that you've learned to walk with tact through corporate America. Tell us about that. I think surprisingly, as I was writing, it was during the actual first year of the pandemic, 2020. And we were also experiencing a lot of the jarring stuff in the media, whether it was the summer of George Floyd, rise of hate crimes against Asian American Pacific Islanders, this heightened awareness of a lot of these over jarring realities that were affecting people in our society. But as I'm writing about my professional experiences, I couldn't help connect the overt stuff with a lot of the covert resistance I remember experiencing. And I'm very careful to say, you know, there's a tack to this because if I do something, if I make a contribution, if I make a prototype or whatever, I am readily accepting and very welcoming of any constructive critique around anything that I have to offer. And I'll take that all day because it helps us all learn. But as I reflected, I realized there was a very healthy share of covert stuff that didn't have a concrete or constructive nature to the feedback or resistance. It was, it made me question, is this resistance I'm feeling where someone's just outright rejecting me, rejecting my presence, resisting what I have to say, shutting me down, does it relate to my identity? It's one of the things where you never know for sure, but you're forced to kind of go through a mental tax of what does that mean? And because perhaps I'm not behaving like the alpha voice in the room that's perhaps more consistently celebrated in certain environments, maybe my tact is different, but I'm already being made to feel like something's wrong with me. And to let that toxicity sort of, you know, to digest it as a tax but also to just like parse it and understand like what feedback was actually helpful for me to grow and develop as a better professional, but what feedback was actually harmful and how do I process that? Yeah. And it sounds like in the book you were, you were kind of talking about, and, and as you allude to with this idea of navigating with tact, there's some times where it's sort of like, I'm going to let this just roll off my back. And then there's other times where that's not the right approach where, you know, it's time to say something or make that person aware of what they're bringing to the team, to you, to the world. How have you figured out when to speak up and how to help people see in a way that they can listen, that they need to take a different approach? I think even in the heat of the battle where, you know, there might've been a macroaggression, <laughs> even then I try to at least start with the assumption of good intent of all parties in the room. And what I try to do when I actually do speak up and there have been uncomfortable times where I've had to really sort of lay out some convictions for people, I try to point it to the folks that we're intending to serve. So the team around the room is ideally intending to serve a target demographic or set of customers, stakeholders, and just reminding people of the imperatives, the convictions that matter for those people we're trying to serve and pointing out constructively in a solution-oriented way, what are perhaps some of the present behaviors how are those behaviors actually impacting our ability to serve? You know, if we're talking too much about politics or we're talking about someone feeling like we're encroaching on their turf because we have an idea or we're trying to just naturally connect the dots and formulate the story. But if someone's resisting for the sake of politics or resisting for the sake of some hidden agenda that no one's 
understanding will logically help us understand how we're having these disconnects from our ability to serve. And laying things out in a solution-oriented way has been a helpful tact and approach to take. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, assuming good intent from other people when they're saying something that might feel offensive or harmful, it's not an easy way, but it seems like it's a really powerful attitude to have. And my guess is that you know, the way that we communicate these days, whether it's over social media, sort of externally or on Slack internally, makes it a lot more challenging in a lot of ways, like not being able to have those face-to-face conversations as much. Have you found any ways, you know, in kind of more remote or hybrid environment that people can have those kinds of challenging conversations in a productive way? You know, I think thanks to Slack and email and, you know, Zooms and virtual sort of team environments like Miro or Morel. I think the same work can get done, albeit with a degree of separation and challenge, that layer that we have to sort of work through. But if anything, I found, especially over the last couple of years, I've actually found a, a heightened sense of intimacy. Even if I can't be in a room with people or together on a one-on-one with someone, I found I've had a lot more one-on-one intimate conversations where through this intimate channel of communication, the curtains of boundaries have sort of relaxed a little bit where we can be even more vulnerable with each other and be more direct around like, how are you feeling? Or how am I feeling? How did that interaction go? And, you know, maybe I sense some tension. Let's talk about that if you don't mind. And so I I think if anything, surprisingly, the business conversations I've had have been a lot more intimate. We've been able to address the gnarly feedback a little bit better, even in a remote sort of modality. We'll return to the conversation after this quick break. Methodical crafts coffee and tea for people of all kinds. They've been around and roasting for more than eight years, and they are certified coffee nerds. On their site, you'll find useful brewing guides that'll teach you how to turn your coffee brewing chore into a beloved ritual and really dial in that perfect cup. I'm a longtime subscriber to the Roaster's Choice subscription and start every day with a cup of methodical coffee. I have to say, without fail, every morning when I wake up, I am excited to drink their coffee because it is fantastic. Methodical's packaging, their website, the entire experience, it's just beautifully designed. Craft a cup that you'll love with methodical coffee by visiting methodicalcoffee.com. And use our discount code, Design Better to get 10% off your first order of coffee or tea. That's methodicalcoffee.com. I've got two young kids who can be a little bit on the noisy side, so my wife and I have gotten used to using closed captions on those rare occasions when we get a chance to sit down and watch a show together. Lots of us have experienced the benefits of products that were initially designed for people with disabilities, from closed captions to dark mode on your phone or laptop to voice-to-text to electric toothbrushes. Designing products for all people, regardless of abilities, leads to greater adaptability, usability, customization, and personalization. With 1 billion people worldwide living with disabilities, Fable Engage helps UX teams collect feedback from people with disabilities to help you build more accessible products. Fable Upskill provides custom accessibility training for digital teams to gain skills to build inclusive products. The best digital teams like Shopify, Microsoft, and Spotify partner with Fable to make better products for everyone. We're big fans of Fable, and we know you will be too. Learn more by requesting a demo at www.makeitfable.com slash designbetter. 
That's www.makeitfable.com slash design better. I'm the sort of person that's always looking for a life hack to live a healthier, more fulfilling life. One thing I've stumbled upon recently is Athletic Greens and their daily supplement called AG1. I start every morning with AG1 in eight ounces of water. It's got all the vitamins and minerals I need to just be healthy and keep my immune system tuned up. Also has prebiotics and probiotics. It's good for gut health. It just makes me feel great, and it's a good habit to start every morning. Certainly better than taking a whole bunch of vitamin pills that can upset my stomach. I'm a big fan of AG1, and I think it's worth checking out. If you're looking for an easier way to take supplements, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Just go to athleticgreens.com slash designbetter. That's athleticgreens.com slash designbetter to live your best life. Check it out. And now, back to the show. Well, let's talk a little bit about your book. You know, you've had an amazing career as we've been discussing how did you get to this point in your life where you think, you know what, I need to capture what I've learned and share that with other people. So why write the book and what did you learn from the process? Yeah, definitely writing a book was not on my career bingo card whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I, never, I never deemed myself a writer, but I think through the career, I, I learned the importance of communication through written word, just like the need to document, the need to communicate around the work that you're putting into the world. And I would say more recently in the last couple of career chapters where I've had to stand up design and innovation capabilities in spaces that hadn't necessarily understood the power of creative problem solving and not having design just sort of be a transacted notion at the end of any value stream. Like these environments, we were doing atypical things that what the business community generally understood about design or design thinking and watching some of those stakeholders and realizing that they were constantly sort of writing and giving talks outside of their day-to-day -day work. This notion of eminence was sort of introduced to me by some of my business partners and mentors around me that, hey, Kevin, you're doing some atypical things with this design team that you're growing. You need to start talking about that too. And this was really manifesting itself inside of the BCG environment was when we were cooking BCG Digital Ventures and really scaling that platform inside the bigger BCG parent. And so when I left BCG, after having written articles for design communities, we did a TED Talk moment with TED and BCG back in 2017 in Milan. And there was a lot more appetite. People were asking me for even more perspective. They're like, wow, well, how do I codify all of these experiences and try to put it together into a book proposal. And my mentors around me were encouraging me to like submit it to publishers. And thankfully, the MIT Press stepped in to want to really commit to a project. Weirdly enough, at the very start of the COVID-19 pandemic. So <laughs> that was the beginning of the writing journey when we were dealing with isolation. Yeah. And for listeners, BCG, could you tell us what the acronym stands for and describe it a little bit? So BCG is the Boston Consulting Group. They're one of a few tier one management consulting firms that consult to most of the world's global enterprises at some way or some level. One of the topics you touch on kind of early in the book is design thinking and sort of uh, some critiques of design thinking. And it's kind of interesting and topical to me because it's come on, up on our project design alumni list. And actually, the Albert Shum, who you mentioned, who's also an alum, has touched on it on, on LinkedIn a little bit. But 
you know, there's all these very legitimate critiques of design thinking, but in some ways it seems like they, I hesitate to say miss the point, but maybe frame it incorrectly. And maybe that's the fault of the sort of some of the proponents of design thinking that put it out there as this like magical thing that can solve every problem. When in reality, it's really more of a toolkit and something that you can pick and choose the right situation to use. But maybe we could just, yeah, talk a little bit about how you frame it, how you think about it, how you've used it in your work. I definitely drew a lot of inspiration from some of the early architects and writers that have sort of laid out the frameworks or at least the philosophy of design thinking. I think it's been especially helpful to the business world to figure out like there's an open aperture around creative problem solving that you can really embrace. And if you don't come from design, you can participate in this. So I view it as a philosophy that's been quite helpful. But at the same time, I'm also conscious of the risks of how it could be harmful, you know, in the wrong hands with the wrong context. If it lacks perhaps the lens of inclusion around who's actually participating in the process And how are those voices, those different voices being respected or not? So I think, unfortunately, there's still a lot of ambiguity in the business world to understand the differences between like, what is design thinking? What is the actual practice and capabilities that represent design? And how do you actually instrument some of this stuff in your organization? I think there's still far too much ambiguity, unfortunately, where we do need to crack through that glass ceiling of ambiguity and show people stronger proof points of how do we weave together strategic positioning of design and how do we make sure that we empower and create the right runways where the depth of craft can also be celebrated in tandem. That's a lot of the conversations I have right now with my client partners, whether they're big companies and innovation groups within them or your you know young ventures that are trying to wire themselves for innovation and design from the very beginning of their journey. Yeah, I totally agree with all that. And I also think one thing that's happened, and this might also be the fault of our education institutions, but you know, I think oftentimes we're really heavily weighted towards the front end of design, the sort of divergent part of design, the exploration, ethnography, that kind of thing, and less so on the actual implementation and craft involved and then actually shipping a product. And so I feel like you know, one of the dangers is you go, let's say, run a design thinking workshop with a team. And all they think it's just all about like post-its and you know <laughs> in, interviewing people and not about actually creating something and shipping it and getting it out to the world with your, you know, obviously with your other partners. But yeah, I think that part's interesting as well. I think what drove me crazy, especially in those recent forays where I had to stand up these things, our stakeholders would they would want to ask for certain things that they would call design thinking. And it ended up being a lot of formulaic mini sprints or showcases to show the power of the creative process. And unfortunately, they might expect the magical answer out the other side of that event, whether it was a three-hour workshop or a one-week sprint. And it's like some of the realities and challenges that we're dealing with, some of those are like long-pole challenges that require deeper thought. It takes time away from the team room, like to your point, in the field, in the garage, cooking, cultivating, iterating. And there might be nonlinear pivots and loopbacks and accelerations. So I, I think there's something to understanding like how do you cultivate these capabilities at a strategic level, also at a practitioner level from a depth perspective, but then really coach people to understand that this is not a linear undertaking, that there's a lot of nonlinearities that you need to celebrate as well. In the book, you talk about the role of rigor in creativity, and that's something that I don't often hear in design teams anymore. 
I see it to a certain degree in industrial design teams, but software design teams rigor the idea of like, let's really go deep on a problem and solution set. Let's produce really great work. How do you see rigor or how have you seen rigor in creative teams like when it's done right? If I describe this in the context of like a very simple framework of the double diamond, let's just say. So in the period of discovery, we might be out in the field. Our stakeholders might be expecting sort of the one slide takeaway <laughs> summary of those interviews that we just had yesterday. They want that in their deck tomorrow so that they can move the project forward. That's sort of an example of just like the formulaic nature. And there's no way that we could really do good work of digesting what we just heard or observed in the field and be able to hand over insights. Because what's typically happens is it's going to be a snooze fest where we're just echoing consensus because people are going to be fearful to, you know, synthesize or create a bullet point that isn't a risk, right? But if we fight for the time, and again, I think this is all around, like, how do you empower these teams to go deep? And there was a project where we had to, like, we actually had to fight to give the team more space to do what it needed to do. They had traveled to China and visited a few mega cities and had like 60 interviews of footage and camera observations. And we allowed them almost a full week to take the time silently to codify all the things that they've heard, to comb through those reams of video footage, to sit in a room quietly and just affinity map all the different verbatims and observations and takeaways. We didn't allow anyone to like bug that team to like bug them for takeaway slides of what happened in those China megacities. We allowed them to just cook and simmer and really ultimately reveal the less than obvious associations that the abductive sort of process allowed. And giving them that space was mission critical for the product when you see where the ideation went after that. The things that they were able to diverge from the insights, there were new and novel insights that led to new arenas that no one could have predicted that that team would have cooked up if they weren't given that luxury of time. So sometimes you have to take the risk to empower the team in that way. And it's so rare. And even though I think most of us who are have been in this creative industry for a while, we know that incubation is a really critical phase of creative exploration. We need to like let the juices marinate a bit to find the solution. Like we've all gone to bed and woken up with a solution or taken a shower or taken the dog for a walk. And then all of a sudden, like these great ideas come out. It's just so rare in business that space is given for that sort of thinking. I'm very conscious that like the time that I was spending upon reflection was falling within three categories. The, the first category was stakeholder management, just keeping everyone informed and updates and <laughs> stand-up meetings and these kind of things, like they're necessary. The second bucket of calories was all the documentation work to satiate those stakeholders, whether it was making decks or status emails and things like that. It takes time to, even if I'm designing wireframes or ID sketches, it takes time to like document the deck that fits around those assets to put them on a wall or have a PowerPoint or whatever. The third bucket of calories, to your point, is that creative problem-solving time and all the different ways that we creatively problem-solve as design professionals the first two categories of time always collapse and threaten that third bucket. So how do you then wire your calendar, your day in life, to ensure that that third bucket of calories is prioritized and protected and almost held sacred compared to the first two? It is sacred. That's the perfect way to describe that time. Absolutely. Are there 
tactical ways you do that, Kevin? Like block off your calendar? Do you have any suggestions for folks to improve their creative process in that way? Yeah, definitely a lot of calendar blocks. You almost have to be conscious of like what is the modality of your typical day in the life that you can at least control. People don't realize that you can actually control your time more so than people give themselves credit for. And sometimes the speed of the clock is an implied authority where you feel like you don't have the license to do that because Slack is pinging all the time and where you're always getting thrust into a meeting. But if you think about the important objectives that you have, because there's a lot of asks of us every day, but I think I've learned, and I've even had training within BCG that really helped me understand and see this for myself. A lot of things that profess to be urgent aren't necessarily important. But if you're holding me accountable to you know, quarterly metrics or annual metrics or whatever, OKRs or KPIs, I need to block the deep creative problem solving time in my calendar to ensure that those important long poles of work get done and by the time that they're needed to be done. So blocking the calendar has become like a relentless habit that I have, that I don't allow the inbox or Slack or these things to dictate how and my ability to get that stuff done. So being very surgical about where you spend your calories, like I'm all for that. And any designer that I have the privilege of serving, I try to counsel them to think about their day in the life and that you are more than welcome to structure your way of working. If you don't want to check Slack during certain hours because you need that head down time, we know that now. Like, let's talk about that as a norm. So in a given week, we're not bugging each other during these core hours. And you have the luxury of head down time to get your stuff done. Eli does this all the time. His Slack status has Kermit the Frog typing furiously <laughs> when he's busy. I know. Right. Don't, don't mess with Eli when, when the I'm Kermit writing, the Frog icon is up. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> One of the topic that comes up in the book in several places is this idea of kind of multidisciplinary teams. And maybe let's talk about what are the advantages of them and what are the challenges you might face when you're assembling a diverse multidisciplinary team? Yeah, I'll, I'll start with the challenge first in that <laughs> from memory... Like when you stick different people that haven't worked together before in the same room, there's all kinds of baggage that you have to unpack. You have to let that team sort of figure out its norms and structure, who leads on a given day. Like the team needs to figure that out. And it would always bug me when I would see teams like on day one kick off together. And you see the first slide on the screen is the work plan that someone hypothesized. Well, I can almost guarantee that three quarters of that work plan is probably erroneous because it unproductively assumes the wrong things about each individual around the table. But the best teams that I found have an open conversation of norms, working styles, leadership tact, ownership, role clarity, and like figuring that out in a norming couple of days before they really get going against their plan. That is critical to get over that hump. And then ideally, if that team is empowered, you just get the benefit of diversity because everyone's percolating different data points, insights, strategic framing, guiding principles, and a multidisciplinary team has a lot more ammunition, a lot more substance to work from to craft their initial hypotheses and strategies and plans than if someone sort of created that in isolation and a vacuum and was trying to hand that out to the next discipline without talking openly with them. Kevin, your book is focused on one key piece of it is about innovation, and that is like, that's a, a red thread that runs through your career. You even said in the book kind of early on, what you were interested in is like, where can I go to the place where I can work on the new ideas? And innovation is, it's almost banal how often it's used in corporate language. Like we're going to innovate, we're going to do something innovative, but it's real. I mean, it's a real byproduct of the creative process when the creative process is nurtured and respected. 
What are, in your opinion, the essential components that lead to innovation in a company? I might have to speak at an individual level and then an organizational level, but individually, I think curiosity is mandatory. And it's not ideally like we're not like looking to innovate for the sake of stroking our own ego. It's like the curiosity to be able to look at who we are intending to serve and figuring out any and all ways to thoughtfully engage those people at, a, at the most human level we can imagine to get an understanding of their needs and not just like make assumptions about those needs, which I think unfortunately happens all too often than not, because we, we sort of see those needs through the lens of our existing core business, which is already biased. <laughs> We're already biased out the gate. So having the humility to understand people at a deeper human level and figuring out how do we actually show up for those people on their terms, in their turf, in their language, and even engage them as part of the team in the first place. And ideally, as we evolve our teams and our ability to think about like, organization, how do we wire ourselves for innovation? Ideally, our team is composed of diverse constituents that represent the people that we're serving. So the relationships can be leveraged in a more authentic and thoughtful way to co-create our way forward together. So curiosity has to drive that. A strong conviction for diversity, equity, and inclusion is required to do that at an organizational level as well. And ultimately, ideally, we're tracking and staying focused on the value criteria that matters to every stakeholder that we're solving for. Because usually it's never the end customer. Every topic, every vertical, every industry situation, there's always a multitude of stakeholders. And if we can keep track of their value criteria, and even under the headwinds and tailwinds of trends that are impinging on us all the time, social trends, tech trends, economic trends, environment, political trends, all the things, values will either stay steady or they might migrate to a different place. So our ability to stay innovative means we have to always stay relevantly connected to those stakeholders as they change and morph and evolve through the course of time. And ideally, we can then generate ideas that help the company grow to match those needs, not grow in the sake of like capitalistic ambition, grow at all costs, grow, you know, greed is good kind of mentality. If we stay in tune with those needs over time, our company ideally will grow in a sustainable, respectful, and thoughtful way where our brand actually has mind share with those people because they trust that we can deliver to their needs. Let's talk about, a little bit about leadership too. And um, you bring up several times the concept of servant leadership and hearkening back to our episode with Jason Maiden, that's sort of his frame of mind around leadership as well, leading from behind. And in one sort of table in the book, you outline these principles of servant leadership, things like setting direction, risk tolerance, and you contrast them with more of a gatekeeper style leader. Maybe we could talk about a couple of those principles that you outlined there? Yeah. Like I'll use one example around like hiring. I remember, unfortunately, in my past inflection points where I might've heard things like, oh, you know, can I have a beer with this person? Would I like this person when the laptop's closed and we're breaking out the ping pong paddles? Will I like this person? And it's like, what, what do you mean when you say that you're evaluating this person on whether you like them? Well, we're not being concrete about how that person and their difference could actually push us to be better as an organization and be more relevant to the people that we intend or claim to serve. So unfortunately, I've seen a lot of behaviors where the subjectivity creates an environment and atmosphere for immediate exclusion, where we're, we're missing out on the potential that that person, that candidate could have had for us. As a candidate, I've been the recipient of some of those sound bites where it's like, where's your edge? Like, what, what do you mean edge? What kind of edge are you looking for? Do you expect me to be 
like so-and-so person over there? Well, they're actually different from me. And I've been told, why can't you be like that person over there? <laughs> and I'm looking at that person. That, that person has in their cubicle, I hate working with stupid people. Like for sign up on their, you know, I remember this. Like it's like, for all to see, oh, you think we're all stupid. Like, you want me to be like that person. <laughs> okay, I got it. <laughs> Just as an example. So curiosity is core component to innovation, and it seems like it's a core component just to how you live your life. I'm curious what you're curious about right now. What are you reading, watching, listening to that's exciting? I'm definitely gearing up my fascination around all the different AI tools, whether it's chat GBT or mid-journey, like especially from a visualization industrial design. A lot of my ID mentors are, you know, bringing me into experiments where we're feeding these these algorithms, initial sketches, and then the, the algorithm spits back 100 sketches back in three seconds. You know, So it's very interesting how these tools could augment. So thinking about that, I'm a believer that still the idiosyncrasies and nonlinearities that make us human will still kind of keep us front and center and ahead of the curve of some of these platforms. We have to figure out how to leverage these platforms to better assist us in our creative work. That's my belief until some <laughs> platform proves me wrong. <laughs> And then I, I also think about just the present climate that we're in with a lot of the recent unfortunate layoffs and how it has disproportionately affected design in many arenas, especially up and down the West Coast with Silicon Valley. And, and also I just came from New York last week and a lot of sobering conversations of people being affected. And it makes me wonder, like, who is the source of influence where the cuts need to manifest themselves? Like, who is leading that conversation? And I wonder, is it the... I hate to say myopic, short-term mindset of Wall Street to say, you know, we're in a recessionary environment. We don't know if we're fully in a recession yet, but it's a pre-recessionary environment. So what are you doing to cut costs? And the companies need to say, oh, oh I'm, de I'm demonstrating cost cutting by targeting non-essential functions and trimming those things down. But part of me also says that same Wall Street analyst, if I'm going to reward someone's you know, valuation or stock price or whatever, based on confidence of what we think you can do, that rewarding you for the thing that already happened. Like Wall Street doesn't behave like that. They price, they value things on confidence level, what they think you can do. So are we shooting ourselves in the foot when we see a lot of these design layoffs where that innovative capability is then hamstrung, you know, and how is that company going to poise itself as we emerge out of any recessionary environment that we're in? How future proof how future fit are they if they cut themselves off by the knees. So I think about that. So who are the voices at the table influencing this behavior of most companies? And unfortunately, this subordination of design that we've been observing in certain pockets of industry. Yeah. It's been a fascinating conversation, Kevin. Where can people learn more about you and your book, Reimagining Design, Unlocking Strategic Innovation? Oh, so kevinbethune.com. Or you can find me on any social platform, usually at, at Kevin Bethune. Also, any other one of those channels will lead you to the book site, which is kevinbethune-reimaginingdesign.com. Fantastic. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you both for having me. Appreciate it. Eli and I love producing this podcast, but sometimes we find ourselves wondering, what sort of feedback does our audience have how could we improve the show? Maybe you could help us by taking just a couple minutes to complete a survey, answering a few questions about your thoughts about the show, sharing your feedback, and telling us a little bit about you 
To take the survey, just go to dbtr.co slash survey. That's dbtr.co slash survey. Our thanks in advance for completing the survey. It'll really help us improve the show. This episode was produced by Eli Woolery and me, Aaron Walter, with engineering and production support from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. If you found this episode useful, we hope that you'll leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to finer shows. Or simply drop a link to the show in your team's Slack channel, designbetter.com slash podcast. It'll really help others discover the show. Until next time.